Hey everyone, how you doing? It's Clara and I'm back with another one of my science chats and this time I'm chatting with uh, a science communicator, scientist and uh, author, Anna Pajowski. So uh, it was a really good, interesting talk. Uh, it's also a bit of a first because Anna's got a book that's coming out um, sort of uh, at the time of recording. It's coming out, I think, May 2021. Um, um, called uh, what's it called? It's called Handmade, and it's about mixing material science with crafts with personal stories. And so this is a bit of a sort of book interview as well as a get to know Anna. So how exciting! Uh, something a little bit different. And with that, let's let's just crack into it, shall we? So with that, welcome, Anna. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, for our uh, viewers or listeners, um, who are you? What do you do? What's the elevator pitch? <laughs> My name is Anna Pajajski. I'm a material scientist, writer, and storyteller. That's the official line these days. <laughs> um, storyteller. Yeah. So I I studied material science at uni. Um, went through the PhD process. Did a couple of research jobs after that. Um, and then I made the leap into sort of science communication um, and science writing. So um, now I'm a, my my day job is working in house at the materials department at Imperial College London um, as a science writer. Um, but I suppose by night I do science communication, um, public talks, schools talks, stand up comedy, uh, and popular science writing. Yeah, a little bit of absolutely everything, and <laughs> you know, much. <laughs> soon to be published author soon to be that's amazing isn't it on, on top of the thesis and everything else that's been published of course but you know different oh different yeah type of all those publications that I've got under my belt <laughs> yeah I know I, mean, I know that one I know and that a one. small handful of them in the deepest darkest corners of the academic literature <laughs> I'm trying to write fellowships and it's really difficult like my last yeah. postdocs were all industrial projects I couldn't publish anything right so. right yeah <laughs> uh yeah and that was a long time ago with a different name in a different country uh, just you know I mean, i'm just making it easy for yeah, people you could make it you couldn't make it more difficult for yourself <laughs> yeah yeah there was a certain point where um i used to get loads of papers to review and then they just dropped off and for a couple of years i'm like what's going on like people mm. really hate people transitioning it's like wait no change country institute email address and name like i've not made it easy for people you have not in some ways though that can be good right like <laughs> it was a lot of work beforehand so you know yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah so um let's let's start what is your area of expertise so you did yourself a, a uh, doctorate and mm -hmm. you went through all that so and you said it was on material science yeah um but of course, material science is really huge. Uh, and so I might have no clue what you do, or I might have more of a clue of what you do. Who knows? So wh what was your uh, area? What were you studying? So I was working in hydrogen storage materials. Um, so I was actually in industry as well. Um, my, my fourth year master's undergraduate year was um, working in industry at a little company called Seller Energy um, in Didcot in Oxfordshire. Um, good old Didcot. And... Um, 
had basically oh. discovered this material that um, contained a lot of hydrogen, which as we know is a gas, but this material was a solid material. Um, and it was able to release that hydrogen when the material was heated up to around 120 degrees Celsius. Um, so their, their grand plan for this material was to be able to use it to power um, hydrogen fuel cells um, with the view to kind of replacing batteries in portable applications like cars or laptops or drones, ah. that sort of stuff. Wow. Um, so we're taking a solid material, releasing hydrogen, putting it into a fuel cell and getting electricity. Um, when I started the project, they were basically like, we've got this really cool material, but we don't know how it works. <laughs> so that was my job was to, was to work out how it worked. Um, it was actually a composite material out of um, this stuff called ammonia borane, which is really high in hydrogen and a plastic called polyethylene oxide. Um, and it was sort of in intermingled in some really interesting ways, sort of right down at the atomic scale, but also in sort of larger scales and more sort of composite type scales. So I was looking at kind of the, the, the physics of how those crystal structures were structured, but then also the engineering of how you actually make a solid state hydrogen powered thing. Wow. That's really cool. That's really cool. Have you kept up with it since, or is it one of those that um, it's done and you're like, okay, I'm I'm done now? Mm, yeah, that one. <laughs> um, it was funny actually. At the end of my thesis, I did this sort of like outlook section, and um, I drew this little graph of like number of publications with hydrogen storage material in the title, or maybe it was ammonia borane in the title against time. Um, and it was sort of increasing, 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 increasing until 2013 when, I oh know, until like 2010 when Anna started her PhD and then it like ran off a cliff and like everybody was just not interested in it anymore. So by the time I finished in 2017, I was like, guys, I've done this really cool thing. And everyone was like, yeah, no, we're doing batteries now. <laughs> we're not interested in what you've done. Um, yeah. So, but then interestingly, hydrogen has sort of made a bit of a resurgence in the last year or two. Um, so maybe it would have been good to stick with it, but that's a long way of saying no I, I i walked away from the field at that point um yeah it's, yeah it's always the same with these sort of new technologies though i mean my my phd area it was you know the emerging technology the technology of the future and the papers are going up and up and up and yeah. then no one could actually use it like you know it's all well right. and good but if you can't yeah. use it mm. uh, and that's really sort of you can only get so much funding for blue skies research and then and then you need to start being able to use it mm. um and i guess it's probably a similar sort of thing and i guess it kind of works well for us because we're making a lot of batteries in our lab so oh no <laughs> yeah, you, you chose um, the right field there don't do hydrogen <laughs> uh yeah well i'm not doing them but uh, there's a whole bunch of people that are and you did i mean am i right that you did your undergrad in oxford Mm, yeah, I did. Yeah, it was, and you did materials. It was material you? science. Yeah, the nichest of subjects. I love it. It's it's interesting because it's such a broad subject, mm. but at the same time, it is niche. And so I've been a material scientist for a while, and I, I've been, you know, this is the first time I've been in a materials department. It's the first time right. I've been in a university where they have a materials course. It's yeah. always. Yeah, I did engineering. I did electrical engineering. That oh, was okay. my degree, and I came in through the side. So, yeah, I, I find it really interesting, and uh, yeah, I don't. But I wouldn't. I, I mean, I I didn't know what material science was. I it's not something I'd ever gone for. And electronics, yeah, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I'd never heard of the subject. I ended up coming to it in a completely fortuitous and accidental way. <laughs> I ended up studying material science. Um, maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But um, yeah, yeah, it was. It, I had never heard of it. Had no idea what it was. Uh, but ended up by sort of roundabout way studying it at undergraduate and just really loved it. Never looked back. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's definitely. I I love the interplay interdisciplinary you know sort of um the, the way oh my goodness my words are just getting chewed up but i love how it takes into account all different things and it's a bit yeah. of engineering a bit of chemistry and it's just yeah i find it really fascinating and i love that we're trying to make functional uh, films we're trying to make functional yeah uh items which is really cool that's um, the brilliant thing about it for me is that it's got it's got the fundamental science of you know looking at how athletes work what they're up to how they interplay but then there's always a real life application to it at the end of it and that's what I really love there's yes you can do fundamental research but there's always a reason that you're doing it and it's always kind of a real world application yeah it's really cool it's really cool and it means that there's a lot of industrial collaborations and things like that mm. and it's it keeps it interesting it's a very different way of looking at things I think mm. I think but maybe I've not uh, gone far enough outside of it <laughs> Over the years, really now. And so, uh, at the moment, you're working in Imperial. So, what is it you're doing on a, a day to day? What's your what's your day job? What pays the bills? What pays the bills is being a in-house science writer. So, I I essentially prepare kind of written materials for academics. So, um, it's things like applying for funding, grant proposals writing sort of big funding proposals writing reports for funders um i have made a website for an, a research in the lab and in their papers into kind of everyday people's language um so it's very very varied um i also do some public engagement work in that job as well um so again trying to to translate what these people are doing in the lab um into the real world and kind of communicate it in in everyday language um and i have to say i, I work with a lot of research day to day and i do not miss research one <laughs> single little bit <laughs> oh. so that that's interesting so it's definitely been a good book. yeah 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 well that's in. interesting because you know the stuff that you're doing is the stuff that i'm like no i don't want to mm. do this and it's yeah. the research for me is the interesting part and i don't want to write it up afterwards i just want to keep on doing it and seeing yeah. what happens so you're completely the opposite in that regard <laughs> it, i mean yeah i, guess I mean i wouldn't say sorry go on no no go for it i was just gonna say i wouldn't say that you know writing other people grant proposals is my life's calling yeah yeah <laughs> but um i certainly yeah. do prefer it to um to the stresses of of leading my own research for me my research career kind of run its own course and i i couldn't i i could i could see where it was going right the path is very well trodden for this yep. um but in order for me to be able to access the next level and to yeah. kind of you know to to really go for a research career would have taken a huge amount of sort of energy and per personal sacrifices all this kind of stuff um and i i just for me personally wasn't prepared to to do that um, no that that's i mean it isn't 
it isn't easy in academia it's not just mm. hey i'm good at it and enjoy it so you carry on it's yeah. it's so much more than that and i mean i well yeah i mean i've been out of it te- you know i've not been doing it for i've not had my own research mm-hmm. for sort of five years apart from stuff i've done on the side and i'm mm-hmm. trying to I'm trying to restart it and it is it's a lot of reading a lot of writing and a lot yeah. of disappointment because you put out proposals and you don't get them you put out fellowship and it's yeah. it's just so competitive and That's so brutal. yeah and and everything takes so long you know you're waiting mm. a year to you, you start writing something and you submit yeah. it and then you wait a year to find out whether you're going to be able to pay your bills in 12 months yeah, you I know. Know. yeah. it's um i'm uh, yeah i it, I'm, you know, we need people to be able to do it, but there's, the, the climate's not great. <laughs> no, no it's not. And it is, it's quite a hostile field in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, there's a lot of really quite harsh expectations, I think, on researchers, you know, to move around the world for a two year contract and then you're not guaranteed to be able to stay. You know, there's a, yeah. it's not very compatible with, I think, a good work life balance yeah yeah I, I mean i yeah talked about that on here quite a lot and okay. you know there are, <laughs> yeah. no i mean it is it it's it's not ideal and that's why i don't want people um on here that we're all talking to it's not all academics because mm. there's so much more and i i think that I'll be honest, you know, I mean, I think if you take, uh, if you don't do a degree, if you go the apprentice route, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do want to go to do a degree, that's also great. Doing a PhD, I think, is a fantastic thing if you're at that level and you want to. Um, but then I think, you know, I did four years of postdocs after that. And I think that to carry on after PhD, you've got to really know where you're going you've got to be really driven and because I had all the stuff going on it wasn't that easy for me mm. um I I fell into stuff by luck if I'm you know obviously you work hard and you create your own luck but positions mm. came up which I could take and I was in the position where I could just leave the country and move mm. around and see what was out there but not everyone can not everyone mm. wants to and I'm at the point now where I want to settle you know I'm a, yeah. I'm literally got plants outside you know <laughs> you gotta stay put for the plants man <laughs> gotta stay put yeah I, I mean not that i'm gonna be able to afford a house in oxford anytime soon but well, that's a whole not. that's something else yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean like you say it's not writing grants for other people and uh, ironic because i've been talking <laughs> been writing them today mm. uh, but, um writing grants for other people might not be the sort of long-term goal but I guess it's interesting because you're getting to uh, learn about the cutting edge research of all different types of stuff. And you're having to, and especially if you're communicating it to public engagement and Mm. and comms and stuff, that's really cool. Yes. And I've I've come to realize that that's actually the stuff that I really love. Um, I've done bits and bobs of sort of print journalism as well. And that's my favorite thing is to call up an academic get them to speak about their research in everyday terms explain it to me um and then translate that in writing to kind of an everyday audience that that is i've discovered you know one of my one of my favorite things to do so yeah that's that's what i'm going down at the moment and and we'll see where it leads that's really cool and obviously i think you know we need lots of different voices um doing science engagement and like you say schools and things like that and Mm. and just 
different approaches because of course you do stand-up comedy as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I mean tell us a little bit about that (laughs) and and, and, and I should say so um I mean I know I know that you talk about it in your book as well in fact that's Uh how we're we're introduced to you uh, in your book which we'll sort of talk about but uh yeah tell us a little bit about your stand-up yeah so it all started, but well, as the book starts, the, the first scene in the book is my first ever stand-up comedy performance. Um, yep. And that came about because I I was doing my PhD at, um, at UCL and was pretty fed up with the lab that I was working in. I wasn't, I wasn't enjoying the PhD in the same way that I'd enjoyed my master's working in industry. Yeah. So I was looking for kind of distractions from the lab and to be able to, you know, have a bit of a break. And UCL run these brilliant sort of graduate school courses there's so many there's language courses you can do training in um writing skills there's there's such a broad range of stuff um but one one which caught my eye was an introduction to public engagement and because it was a really long course it was over like a number of days so I was like brilliant maximum time out of the lab yeah <laughs> um and so I, yeah, I went along to this introduction to public engagement course. It was being run by Dr. Steve Cross, who at the time was, um, was head of public engagement at UCL. And um, I am a bit of a teacher's pet, <laughs> I would say. Um, and in a kind of group learning situation, um, you've, I, th- I think we've all been to these kinds of workshops where everybody is very, very quiet and doesn't really want to participate. And in those types of situations, I, um, I definitely side with the teacher, the authority figure in the room. And so I will always be sort of like putting my hand up, <laughs> giving them a helping hand. <laughs> if no one's saying anything, I'll be the one to contribute. So that's how, that's how these courses went, was <laughs> me being relatively vocal um in in these sessions and then at the end of the day um Steve who's a good friend of mine now he came up to me and said um you seem like a bit of a show-off thank you very much (laughs) um and he said you do you want to come and try stand-up comedy um and at the time he was running bright club and science show-off actually two two comedy nights um designed to train researchers and academics um in comedy skills stand-up comedy skills and then invite them to do a nine minute stand-up comedy set about their research to a non-academic audience so to a pub audience yeah. to a comedy audience um and because i like to please authority figures <laughs> and teachers um i said yeah sure that sounds fun um i knew that i was petrified of public speaking at this point but i said yep yeah, i I can't say no to this person. So I signed up for it. Um, and a few weeks later, yeah, I found myself standing on stage confronted by an audience of 150 slightly tipsy expectant, uh, people. And I was, had to do a nine minute comedy set about hydrogen storage materials. (laughs) Wow. And I was very petrified. And that's where you meet me in the book is, um, you know, sitting in the middle of the crowd, like sweating, like fingers shaking, uh, and then going up on stage and saying, hi, my name's Anna and I'm a material scientist. I'm going to tell you about hydrogen storage materials. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, and I can feel your pain. And also, I mean, I, well, I don't think I'd have had the courage to actually sign up in the first place. But, you know, when you sat there in the audience and you're describing that block, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> it, it felt very real. Oh, good. I'm pleased. I'm, I'm pleased it was 
quite a visceral sort of entry into the action but it's funny so so yeah I was very very petrified of public speaking but I think I knew that that was a personal weakness of mine and I, I did want to kind of overcome that fear and mm. become a bit more confident um and so that was why I signed up and you know that first comedy night went okay the audience are very very first time um I have I think May Martin might have been emceeing for some reason so oh. someone like may martin was emceeing um this was sort of like six years ago or something so <laughs> before before she was huge um but yeah uh then i did that i did that night and and it went okay um but it, it intrigued me i think is is the thing to say about comedy um it's not scientific <laughs> you know yeah. people talk about oh there's a formula that you can write formulae for jokes there are yeah. patterns in jokes um, there is definitely a science to it, but it is so much more of an art than it is a science. And yep. for me, that was very alien because up until that point, I'd always been studying, you know, the scientific realm. There's always a right answer. You can get 100% in a test, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but the comedy is entirely subjective and often it's out of your control. You can deliver exactly the same lines in exactly the same order. In one room, you'll set the whole room on fire and everyone will be falling about laughing. In another room, it'll just go down like a lead balloon. So that intrigued me and I didn't understand it and so I kept going back I was like I I want to get to the bottom of this I want to understand how this works um so I, I kept doing it for for a few years um wow. obviously I haven't done it and we're speaking in March 2021 <laughs> haven't done it for a while now yeah but, um the world <laughs> the world um for me I've learned so much from from doing stand-up in terms of primarily understanding audiences um and thinking of who your audience are phrasing stuff correctly and cleverly because you know the how a joke is phrased the words in the right order can can really really change how it comes across all yeah. that kind of stuff really really helped me in my you know the presentations that I do but but also as an academic as well yeah. um I, I directly attribute writing my PhD thesis in the way that I did to stand-up comedy and storytelling um sort of techniques that I'd learned over the last few years before I wrote my thesis um, so there's there's definite interplay between the two no I, I find it fascinating and I, I think that this is where I'm going to say a lot of lecturers and academics fall down is that you know mm. they go up and they just present their science and it's just it, it's dry and so people don't necessarily engage students don't necessarily engage and i think we could be getting a lot more out of sort of students and audiences if we had better skills i'm not saying that everyone's gonna want to do stand-up comedy or whatever but and nor I, should <laughs> well i uh, you know i think that stuff like improvisation and stand-up comedy and stuff are, are really useful mm. i as much as i want to want to do stand-up comedy when I'm presenting science and doing my talks, you know, I've got jokes scattered throughout. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to not tell jokes. It's, I can barely, I'm not saying they're good, but you know, I can barely get through a meeting without at least one joke. Yeah. Um, and often in science crowds that sort of people just look confused. <laughs> yeah. But, it's it's been interesting because I really noticed this when I went I was doing so many talks in person and then obviously because of what happened in 2020 we all went online mm. and you don't have the feedback anymore 
And yeah. so it just, I feel like I'm literally just telling a joke as it's a sentence, as it's just yep. a piece of prose. And yeah. it just, so my jokes have gone down. Like I just. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, and, and of course they have, because so much about comedy and delivering comedically is about connection. And it's about, it's about that feedback. And if there's no feedback, you just feel like you're throwing your voice into the void. Yeah. And what's the point in that? <laughs> yeah, I, I I really need that feedback. I really need to see, even if it's just a wry smile somewhere. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I did um so I did a TEDx talk a few years ago and the audience were fantastic and there was a few jokes in there and people are laughing. Mm. But um when I watched the video back, you can't hear the audience laughing. So it looks like I'm just laughing to myself. <laughs> <laughs> And waiting a really long time before you say the next thing. <laughs> yeah, this is it. And because because people are laughing and then somebody else would get it, so it would carry on. So it's like I'd start going for the next thing and then catch myself laughing. And, oh, no. and it just sounds weird because it's like I'm just laughing to myself. Oh, that's cruel. That's really cruel. <laughs> yeah, I think at the end, like, you know, you can hear a bit more of the laughs. But yeah, like people were mm. laughing. <laughs> I keep on telling people that whenever they watch it, people are laughing, honestly. wasn't just yeah. laughing to myself. That's weird. <laughs> I mean, I do sometimes, but, you know, I think we all do that. We all do but that. But no, I think, I think when it comes to science communication and lecturing and things like that, having mm. those tools, whether it's, like, say, improvisation, whether it's the yeah. um, stand-up, even, even, like, how you put the presentations together, you know, I've been doing quite a lot with, animations not great animations mm. but and i realize that they're mostly visual so they're not you know not everyone can access them in the same way but i just think it adds and also being able to you know if the audience is falling asleep stop talking about that one property of the film and move on to exactly <laughs> exactly and that is what what this year has robbed us of is being able to read read the room yeah. <laughs> and change tack and improvise with what you're doing um and and connect you know that's the whole reason that i do all of this stuff is to be able to yeah. connect with people and um yeah. and yeah it's just not the same it's I mean, on on one side, you know, I'm not traveling up and down the country, and that's kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's not the same. It's not the same. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're the same. We've not stopped doing it, but it's not mm. the same. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you've thrown, you know, your talents in other ways, and you've been mm. writing. Yeah. Mm. So it's interesting that you're enjoying the writing during the day so much that you thought, well, let's carry on doing this when I get home and start writing a book. And that's exactly what you've done. You've written a book. Yeah. I've got a, a um I've got a sort of prelim sort of uncorrected <laughs> proof version in front of me and it's called Handmade, the scientist's search for meaning through making. Mm -hmm. yeah so what brought this about why why write a book well the reason I wrote this book was because I I had never read a popular science book that was written by somebody like me mm -hmm. by somebody with the sort of voice that I speak with and write with um, from someone coming at the subject 
from the angle that I was coming at it from. Um, you know, the huge majority of popular science books tend to be written by people at the top of their field. You know, they get to professor and then they um, get a book deal because, yeah. of course, that's how it works. That's what they do. Yeah. Um, those books are brilliant in their own right. They yeah. communicate the science very, very well. Um, but to me, the stories that are in them, if there are any stories in them, were not the types of stories that I related to. So that was my starting point, really, was um, was wanting to include stories by about my own life um, that I hoped my audience would relate to in some way. Um, so, you know, a key difference about me is that I'm not a professor. I'm probably never going to become a professor. <laughs> um, I'm relatively young. Um, I'm a woman. And the stories that I tell are from my life. I don't, I don't tell stories necessarily about the science. The, the key thing about this book is that the stories come first and the science is hooked onto those stories. Yeah. This, the science itself is never the backbone of the driving narrative. Um, so that, that was my kind of key assumption really was that I assumed that my audience wouldn't care about the science. <laughs> um, and it was my job to draw them into the science with stories about other stuff. That's really cool. And I like that as an approach and because science is fascinating. And I think, but I think that the way we're taught it in schools, people tune out and it, how many times, you know, how many things are there that you look into now and you're like, Oh, this is really interesting. I hated this in school and science is the same. You know, there's so much mm. good stuff. I think I'm not saying everyone's going to love science, but I think there's probably something for everyone. And it's how we tell that, how we get that across. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when we learn science in school, the key reason that we're doing it is to pass exams. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I refuse to believe that science is inherently interesting. <laughs> oh, I feel like we just froze there a little bit. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, we definitely froze there. Okay. <laughs> You, it was it was like a mic drop you said i refuse to believe that science is inherently interested inherently interesting and then just off we go <laughs> well I'm, I'm very happy with, with that let's leave that in the edit because that's exactly what i hoped for <laughs> because but I, I do genuinely believe that you know like yes yes we can find it interesting but i actually think it's only interesting because of what we were saying earlier about material science um mm. because of the real world applications that it that yeah. it leads on to the consequences of that science um and so that was my starting point for writing to my audience was i'm not going to assume that you guys yeah. give a monkeys about this science and it's yeah. my job to yeah. to draw you in that's cool um, and I guess, you know, very overviewy, but I mean, did you start right? Was this like a lockdown project or had you been writing this for ages beforehand? Uh, I'm guessing, uh, I mean, you don't just write a book, so. <laughs> yeah, what's that meme? The <laughs> the uh, Lord of the Rings meme? One does not, one does not simply write a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so I was writing it for probably a year and a bit, for most of 2019, actually. Okay um that was that was the period and then um for for the last couple of the last couple of months of writing was the first couple of months of lockdown in 2020 okay. and so the majority of it came beforehand um which you will realize in the book because it's all about me going about <laughs> out and about meeting people and shaking people's hands and having a go at 
<laughs> putting my hands in the clay that someone else has put their hands in, which none of these things are allowed to do anymore. So, oh, unfortunately, the book has become yeah, very dated not... very quickly. <laughs> yeah, how did I not? That was obvious, but yeah, now you said it. Yeah, that makes sense. But no, uh... it's a good question, and you know, all of those ideas were sort of percolating in my mind for much longer than than when I was writing it as well. Um, I started a podcast in 2017 where I started to interview makers hmm. and craftspeople um, about materials. And that was really the main inspiration for the book because um, back back in 2017, I, I came to this sort of epiphany really that, you know, I'm a material scientist. I can make graphs out of materials. I can write all of the formulae of how these materials properties relate to each other and and all of that kind of stuff. I can do it all on paper, but actually I I cannot throw a pot on a potter's wheel or forge an iron bar in a, in a blacksmith's forge. Um, I, I, I can't do any of that sort of hands-on stuff. Mm. Um, most of the time I can't even identify what materials, what objects around me are made out of. Um, I can do it all on paper, but it just, there was this yeah. huge kind of gap in my understanding, um, which I came to realize then. And um, I, so I, I realized that it, the, the, the gaps in my understanding really came from the world of craft and art um, and the sort of other side of this like art science divide mm. um, and materials is a really interesting way to bridge that divide I think because yeah. um, craftspeople and artists obviously work with materials every day with their hands they experiment with it they they really get to know it and how it behaves in the real world and us material scientists do kind of the opposite of that really you know we we're very much on the kind of theoretical side broadly speaking obviously research grow things in perfect conditions yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah um and so yeah i started having these conversations with craftspeople and artists and just asked them about their materials what they knew um and learned from them so after a few years of doing the podcast i i decided to write a book and kind of have a go like actually get my hands dirty and, and kind of try all of these crafts processes um and write about that amazing and and is that podcast still going or it is involved, it is right? still going um it used to be called oh sorry Which lost you again what was that again oh sorry <laughs> that's okay but where, where, where did you lose me from you said it's called it was oh. <laughs> again another perfect timing thing <laughs> so the podcast used to be called real talk yeah. Um, which was a pun on material. And then um, for a few years, I had to explain the name every time I introduced the podcast or spoke about it to anyone. <laughs> um, so I realized that was not the best, uh, not the best approach. And so then I changed it to, it's now called Handmade to be in line with the book as well. So it's much easier to describe to people now. Um, I, I yeah. did wonder uh, whether the title changed to coincide with that, but that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to, so I'm, I'm as much as I put this out as a podcast, I am not a podcasty person. I've mm. never really downloaded them, um, mm. but it's something I really should do because there's so much stuff I'm missing out on. Um, but oh, they're great. I really got into them um, when I was, when I was working in my PhD lab and having a really miserable time. I listened to, when, when I wasn't talking to anyone around me, I was just listening to other people in my ears. Yeah. <laughs> See, for me, it was emo and, and goth. So, you know, I, I was, okay. <laughs> I'm that kid. 
It's funny you were talking about being teacher's pet before and you said a lot of people are quiet. I'm not that. I'm the sarcastic kid. Even now, bearing in mind I teach and I do courses and stuff like that, I'm still that miserable goth at the back of like, oh, that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm horrible to teach. I really am. And I know that. (laughs) And it's weird because I love learning. Yeah. (laughs) Because I want to learn stuff. And yet my brain is just like, no. Uh, um but yeah no the sorry the um the book I, so i think that it, it interests me because it actually combines three of my passions um because it's it's about science mm-hmm. but then there's all you tie a lot of the chapters into the outdoors mm. and you know whether that's swimming whether that's being in the mountains and stuff like that and so you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time. I'm a climber. I, I'm a hiker. I do a lot of. I've been arranging a rough uh, 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 camp, a wild camp. You know, that's. I love the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you were describing the mountains and and wherever it was, whether it was up in Scotland or you were. And uh, I, I was jealous. Uh, you know, I was there with you, and I'm like, oh my god! I was, so I haven't got a camper van, and that would be really cool. Um, and I always thought, because I used to be, I was a lifeguard and swimming teacher for 10 nice. years. So oh, cool. I always thought about swimming the channel, but then um, dysphoria, dysphoria sort of took over and I've not been in a swimming pool for about 15 years. But um, mm-hmm. up till then, yeah, I was a teacher and I competed. So, and it, it was one of those things that was always in the back of my mind, like, yeah um yeah but and and then the other thing is the crafting but you know Mm. let's take one thing at a time uh there's (laughs) too much um but yeah i mean tell me about so i love that you have these personal achievements or maybe even so uh the section on wool so it's it's a range that you're talking about a a material and then how it's used and you're talking about crafting and then you're sort of putting some personal experience to Mm. that um and the ones like I say, that resonated and made me jealous with the outdoor one. So with the uh, wool section, you were talking about getting a van and just going off to Scotland yeah. and swimming across lakes and, and knitting. Yeah. That's amazing. Like, what made you do that? You just you just wanted to go? It was Basically, the time. yeah. So I'm that, that wool chapter is sort of... Um, it's kind of about feeling like a bit of a fish out of water living in a big city I'm, I'm a bit of a country bumpkin at heart I didn't grow up in London um I grew up in a town called Bedford which is kind of just your bog standard kind of market town in England it's it's quite a small town and so when I moved to London for my PhD I felt very very overwhelmed yeah and and still do I'm, I'm still here eight nine years later but I do feel very overwhelmed and for me London is is a city of sort of quite conflicted so there's 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 friends and there's culture and there's energy and excitement but then it's also very debilitating in terms of it, it sucks your energy levels out and, and it sucks your finances out of your pocket and um i've yeah. always felt very kind of conflicted about this place um that i live in and so um i actually went thing holiday genesis to my channel swimming um endeavors i went on a swimming holiday and in croatia with with some channel swimming friends and every day we would wake up there'd be beautiful sunshine we would we would kind of walk 100 meters down the beach into the sea every day and i 
it was it I was just so so happy that week yeah and I yeah. realized that, like this is what makes me happy is place and having having nice things around me and being able to do these things I love like swimming um so I was like right how can I get that life but in London (laughs) and so for me the answer was buy a camper van (laughs) yeah so that's what I did um, at great personal expense um but absolutely no regrets at all um so I bought this little camper van and um yeah had had five weeks of summer two summers ago just pootling around Scotland um and learning how to knit so I'd always sort of wanted, I'd always wanted to learn how to knit. I always thought it was something quite cool. I liked the idea of being able to make my own sort of clothes and hats and all that kind of stuff. Cool. But I'd never really had the chance to. So on this camper van trip, I was like, right, it's just me and the van. I'm just going to learn how to knit. So I bought some needles and wool um, nice. and yeah, knitted my way around the Scottish Highlands, buying wool from all the different places that I went to um, yeah. and made this huge blanket at the end of it. Yeah. It's just so cool, and and like I say, I, I, as someone that yeah loves the outdoors myself, mm. it was I could really feel it when you were talking about it, and it was just I missed that. Yeah, I, I really strongly yeah. missed it. Um, yeah, but and and yeah, like you say, I think use that to also sort of learn to knit as well. I mean, that's mm. really cool. So, I mean, was it something you? intended before you set out or was it literally you went past a wool shop and you're like ah here's my next five weeks <laughs> <laughs> good question I can't remember when I had the idea I I'm pretty sure I had the idea maybe a few weeks before I went and and bear in mind as well this was the year that I was writing the book so yep. I was like oh I need, I need a book chapter out of this as well <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> because so the, the book is 12 chapters long 10 of those are materials chapters so one material every yep. chapter I had a year to write the book so that's one pretty much one chapter per month, 7,000 words a chapter. Each chapter needs to have an experience going to meet a maker and needs to have sort of personal anecdotes and stories and needs to have science and, and history. Those, yeah. those are kind of all the, the key beats in every single chapter, which but bearing in mind that I was also working a full-time job. Yep, yep. <laughs> meant that it was actually pretty tight going to generate enough content to keep writing every single month, a whole new chapter um so I saw I I also had to capitalize massively on everything that I was already doing yeah so the fact that I had yeah. this holiday booked in this camper van I was like I kind of need to do like to get some <laughs> content yeah. out of this as well for the book so that that was a sort of not very um glamorous reason for doing it um yeah <laughs> but it's cool you you got that new skill and it's a lot harder to uh you know take a, a forge in your um in your camper van so you know i think knitting was probably an easier (laughs) choice if i'm honest yeah Um, and and what is interesting because a lot of the chapters are about making things and and with sort of materials of wood and you've got sort of steels and you've got plastics and wool which Mm -hmm. is really cool um and you do have a chapter on sugar as well and Mm -hmm. it's interesting because we Mm -hmm. make food basically and yeah. so you tie it in that way um and that was i i don't know it's the material was really different from the others and so it sort of took me by surprise but also it was the chapter mm. where you talked about you know your channel swim and mm. and i just never considered tying in the sugar because it's cooking it's baking and that you know yeah, that's a craft like everything else yeah 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 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed writing that chapter, um, partly because the story of it is the story of my channel swim, and that was just such a huge sort of thing in my life Impressive. anyway. Yeah. Um, also, when I was training, I'd, I'd written a blog, a training blog, and I'd already mm. written up the swim. So oh, again, cool. me trying to overlap as many interests as possible with writing the book, I was like, I've already kind of written this chapter. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to rework good. it for the book. So that was quite handy. Um, but yeah, sugar is is so important in in endurance exercise um, and in channel swimming particularly. And it's this it's this Ellie, the maker that I talked to, Ellie Doney, um, she's a, a food researcher and a sort of materials. She's yeah. an artist actually, but she she's quite sciencey in her approach. Um, describes sugar as a mega material, mm. which is so true because you know it comes in all of these different forms. It can be like you know um, a single crystalline grain, or it can be like um, you know pink and fluffy in in spun sugar, um, or it can be sort of dissolved in liquids and hidden. Um, yeah. so it's this or like a really gloopy like viscous treacle there's so many different sort of um, shades of sugar um, and so it's but then it also has a very checkered past you know yeah. um, sugar yeah. was was one of the main substances that fueled the transatlantic slave trade and it's got this mm. really dark shameful history to it um, and if we're talking about materials a lot of the the substances I like talk about steel, for example, or, you know, the industrial revolution, you, you can't talk about materials without talking about the industrial revolution, especially in terms of the sort of um, British history of materials. And yet all of that was financed by sugar from, from the slave trade. And so there's, there's, um, there's these really fascinating links and important links yeah. to remember about, um, about all these materials. And so I didn't want to shy away from any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully I've, I've done the story justice yeah absolutely um and and yeah and that was in there and i think you can't hide away and that's mm. also true when you're talking about um other materials because you were talking about your grandfather as well mm -hmm. and your grandfather during the war and being involved in making planes and things like that and yeah. was it nice to be able to delve into the family history and and pull that side out but and it was also i mean it fit it was Mm. It was exactly what your book, you know, it, it was it it was part of the book and it made perfect sense to be there. Is it nice to be able to talk about family and have that link? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so this is this is my plastics chapter. Um yes. and um yeah, my, my granddad George, my Polish granddad um on my dad's side, he's always been this sort of very big big figure in my life. Um you know, I, I grew up in the in the UK. My dad grew up in the UK, but mm. we've we've all got this Polish surname, and it's a very funny. It's a funny thing because I I don't really identify with any sort of Polish culture. I've been there three times, maybe four times. Um, we we we. My dad doesn't speak Polish. My granddad didn't teach any of his kids Polish, so we're we're not we don't have any kind of cultural links to it, and yet we have this very complicated surname that yeah. often requires a lot of explanation um and so my granddad george has been the only link in my life to that side of my kind of mm. identity i suppose um and so he was always quite mysterious to me um and so the story of the plastics chapter is the story of his life um he was born in 1910 in russia and 
um he died when he was 97 so in 2007 and so he so he lived essentially the whole of the 20th century um which was a tumultuous century in many ways in all sorts of areas but um particularly in terms of the rise and fall of plastics um you know he was born just a few months after the first ever synthetic plastic bakelite was invented um and by the time he died, you know, every, everything in his world had turned to plastic. Yeah. Um, and this, these materials sort of intersected with his life story in, in various times as well. Um, so including when he mo- first moved to, to England, um, sort of at the end of the Second World War, um, he, at, after the war, he, he needed to kind of settle in this country and really make a life for himself because it wasn't safe to return to Poland. Yeah. Um, so he started a plastics company yeah. um, making plastic. And he was an engineer. So he's kind of recognized the, the future of these materials in 1945. Um, and, and so for me, that was a really fascinating opportunity to be able to tell his life story, which is, which is just the most tumultuous Thing. he's been a refugee twice in his life he lived through both world wars mm. he, as a refugee he flew he had to flee the first time from russia east to they ended up in japan through like via the trans-siberian railway and got separated from his family before the age of 10 and then in the second world war um he ended up fleeing all the way through europe and then got on a boat ended up in canada came back to <laughs> europe <Yeah. laughs> it's 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 unfathomable to me as um, a very privileged middle-class girl who grew up in Bedford her whole life to witness this kind of life so so close in the family um, so it was it was really amazing to be able to draw those stories out and I I never really knew a lot of them before I started writing the chapter actually so my granddad had written down his sort of memoirs um, and, and all of the family have a copy of it but I'd never wow. I'd never really sat down to properly understand it and he wasn't someone, he was of a generation that would never talk about their feelings or yeah. really even anything that had happened to him. So he would always sort of hint at this sort of very, um, a life full of sort of adventure and and sort of terrifying occurrences. But I never really properly understood it before I sat down and read about it and then subsequently wrote about it as well. Yeah. Um, so that chapter is very much based on his memoir. I sort of, the the spine of the chapter, I basically just rephrased a lot of his words. Um, so some of his original words are in there um, and his turns of phrase, which, which is sometimes quite, quite endearing. I've, I've kept some of those in, um, but it was amazing to get to know him properly. You know, as I say, he's not someone that would ever have spoken about his feelings, but there's some really tantalizing nuggets in there. Um, for example, he, from the age of seven, he was fleeing um, on the Trans-Siberian Railway East from Russia because of the Russian Revolution. And um, there were lots of sort of different nationalities of soldiers posted in, in these various cities throughout Russia. Um, lots, lots of British soldiers posted. And um, he writes in his memoir that the first, the first words of English that he ever learned were um, the song, It's a Long Way to Tipperary. Um, and I just, I that like kind of punched me in the gut when I read that. And I don't know why it, it for me, it was just so sort of mm. sweet and innocent. And, you know, yeah. he, I remember he always spoke with a very strong Polish accent, even though he lived in the UK since 1945. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, he, he, I remember him describing feeling the, the first time he ever felt British or felt English was when he started 
when he switched from dreaming in Polish to dreaming in English. Uh, um, so he's always, I don't know, I just, and then, but then to hear that, you know, his first words that he ever learned were, were this kind of like very stereotypically 1920s like song. I don't know. It just, yeah, it really, really brought a tear to my eye. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's interesting what you're saying about switching the, the language, the, the dreaming, because um, it's something that I hear from trans people a lot as well when oh, really? they see themselves when they change how they see themselves in dreams um and it's something that yeah means quite a lot to me so that's really interesting that's really yeah that's really yeah cool. it's funny isn't it the dreams it mm. shows a lot about how we look at ourselves and think about ourselves and also the really foresight is. to be sort of yeah you know like you say right at the start of plastics and really sort of starting a company and trying to get them out i yeah. think it was interesting that you also sort of looked at the lifespan and of course you're looking at the modern climate where yeah. you know the the big push is to remove plastics to get away mm -hmm. from that um mm -hmm. and i know you touch on it but you know what would what would he have made of it what would uh yeah yeah it's a really good question i think so he his job was aircraft designer he, he worked as a yeah. designer for his whole career and um i think he the thing about plastics that I wanted to get across really is that it's it's so much bigger than just this one material, right? Like the thing about plastics is that they are a very good poster child for the amount that we waste mm -hmm, <laughs> as a society, mm -hmm. as a sort of species, really. Yeah. Because they float in the seas, they're very obvious um, and they make a very, very compelling emotional case when we see them choking animals in yeah. the sea and things. Yeah. Um, but of course, we also throw away all of our other materials as well. All the metals, all the ceramics, all of the glass, all of the, you know, yeah. yes, some of it is recycled, but not really, like not yeah. most of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so for me, and I think for Granda George, it is a design problem. The, the problem is that we're not designing objects and um, and possessions to be recycled or reused or refurbished fixed um we we've designed them in such a way that they that they are generally single use and then they end up in landfill and so i think his attitude would be definitely that it's it's a design problem we need to start redesigning stuff better um that's well, what yeah. I, that's what i think it makes sense so yeah and you know you're talking about sort of starting a, com a, a, a you know a, a business in the sort of 1940s and at that mm. time you didn't make things for single use you made things to last you made things and this is i mean uh, and you were talking about there's lots of other examples of course like clothes you know fast clothes i mean the turnover we got with clothes they don't last people don't darn them they don't keep them they wear them twice um and yeah, I guess it was a very different world that when he started that company, it was you you design stuff to last and it was like, well, can plastic last? Which it can. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, a, a good thing. That was a, you know, a yeah. strength of the material. Totally. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously I talked about some of the chapters that are sort of trying to keep an eye on the time-ish as well um, um i mean and you know there's some chapters where i i love it the the wistfulness of the um so of being in the mountains and then you've got mm. the um you know the the challenge of um swimming the channel channel and to be honest i was 
as shattered as you at the end <laughs> of that chapter and you could it's interesting you could tell that you you'd you know used notes that you'd written at the time because oh, really yeah because it definitely it had that sort of like i've done it and this is amazing mm. time to sleep yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah 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 sort of feel yeah. to it and so you could yeah you could tell when you said it came from diaries that doesn't surprise me at all oh interesting um but then you've got like the the sort of deeply personal stories you've got mm. your granddad's story but then also you talk about how it was doing a phd and you talk about mm. how difficult that was um and so there's really a, a it's it's a real journey it's a real autobiography and it really mm. is interesting and it's interesting how you sort of frame this all around different materials and mm. i'm a big old crafter you know i make dioramas and i make minis and paint and things yeah. like that so um when i'd read it it was interesting i was thinking well i've got five different types of epoxy resin that i use just there for casting (laughs) and so i was like well maybe i should sort of you know do a similar thing but talking about you know specifically from the uh, modeling point of view yeah (laughs) 100 percent uh, I, I I think after reading your book, I I had sort of sketched out like how I could do a a, a similar sort of book. And oh, I'm good. Like, oh, no, that's your book. I need my own book. <laughs> I need my own idea. I don't own this idea. Oh, I know. Do handmade too. <laughs> yeah. Well, handmade too. Yeah, the the D and D nerds version. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this is this is the conclusion that I come to in the book. Right, is that th- these this is my story with just ten materials. There yeah. are hundreds of materials that you could tell stories about, that I could tell stories about, but I'm just one person and those are just my personal stories. We all have these kinds of stories with yeah. materials. Um, so I just, I really hope that the book will help people, like you just say, identify um, the the material stories in their lives. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of the materials that you use in your crafting, because I, I am a crafter and I, so I was jealous at some of the things you've done. I've done I've done some glass melting, but I've never done glass blowing. I think that's the one that made me most jealous. I think <laughs> glass blowing. Did you have a favorite? Uh, I mean, I think it's hard to choose, right? And they're all so different. But was there a, a favorite activity that you did? You know, I think for me the most visceral was was blacksmithing. Yeah, um, it's such a yeah. it was such a rare privilege to be able to go and, and spend time with um, a brilliant artist blacksmith called Agnes Jones up in Glasgow. Um, she is just incredible. Um, yeah. And to be able to because also steel is such a huge material in material science. It's like yeah. it's like <laughs> the big one. <laughs> um, and so to be able to experience it hands-on like I say it's not something yeah. that I'd had before so to be able to really feel the softening of steel when it's heated to be able to feel it work hardening as I hit it with a hammer um to be able to kind of stretch it round um by hand was just incredible and to feel the heat of it yeah. and to see it coming out of the forge kind of white hot yellow hot and then cooling down and the hammer scale flaking off as you hit it with the hammer it was just it, that was amazing so i think that was probably my my favorite single experience yeah i think so that was i think glass blowing is the one that i'd want to do the most mm. but i also think i'd be a bit rubbish at it if i'm perfectly honest it's hard. um metal smithing i've done a little bit of casting and things like that mm-hmm. and i've made a knife 
Um, but I'd love to make like a Damascus Damascus steel blade or something. <laughs> yes. Like. So that is the other material that's like, yeah, if someone gave me money and said you can do craft yeah. things, this is your Christmas present, which do you want to do? I, I think I'd probably go for the, the steel forging over the, the glass yeah. just because I think I'd be more likely to have something at the end of it. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spend some time with like some, yeah, Japanese knife makers. <sighs> yeah <laughs> yeah because i've done some bronze egg casting and that was that was fun but it's very different it's not yeah. it's not the same um yeah that's amazing that's amazing um so i guess i mean is there anything else in the book that i, I always ask people this mm. is there anything else that you, you know we haven't touched on but you'd like to mention and whether it's something from the book or something outside of that and that doesn't have to be <laughs> i guess one of the things that I'm a bit, so this is the first book interview I've done, as I said. Yeah. One of the things I'm slightly worried about is, like you say, is extremely autobiographical. Mm. Um, I don't hold much back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, I don't know how that's going to be received. Um, I don't I don't think anyone's ever written a book quite in this way before. Yeah. Um, and I don't know... I don't know if people are going to read it and just say, we don't care about your life. <laughs> we don't care. We don't care that you're gay. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting. So I think I understand that because you're putting so much of yourself out there and it's, mm. does anyone care? Um, and yet so many of the talks that I've been invited to do are about my life. You know, I've yeah. shared some really personal and intimate stuff. I mean, my TED talk yeah. talks a lot about battles with depression and things like that. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's never, it's never going into heavy politics. Your, your politics come through, but it's not yeah. a political book. And, and of course your struggles are there, um, but it's not like it's, it's so difficult to read because you're talking about stuff and it's mm. raw but mm. it isn't i mean sometimes you read people's stories in heavy depression and that's you you, you can only read so much yeah. i could have carried on reading it um either mm. i've become totally desensitized <laughs> but it but it has that mix as well because it has the accomplishments like say the swimming and then uh managing to forge uh with steel mm. um yeah, yeah. it's got the triumphs it's a real mix and I think that people really are interested in people's stories, you know, from what I've seen. I hope so. I hope so. That that's what I'm banking on, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I, and yeah. I do, people relate to stories. This is why we've got so much reality TV. This is why we sort of lap up vlogs and blogs on on YouTube. Yeah. And um, I think it's a much harder sell if you wrote a book on materials and it was all material science. Yeah. that's a small crowd <laughs> um yeah. that'd be yeah. it you know it'd be a very good book of course it would but it would be a there's only certain people yeah. that are going to resonate with that um yeah yeah and actually with what you've done i think you've got this really interesting life you've done all these amazing experiences and also you can sneak in the science and it's like we were talking about at the beginning it's like science is cool you know science has got some really yeah, cool stuff it is it is it is cool i think it's cool yeah um, have you thought what goes into sugar have you thought what goes into making windows you know 
exactly exactly um yeah n- none of the scientific um sections in the book are very long that's the other thing i wanted to do as well yeah. was make sure that even if it's a bit heavy going at times and you're feeling a little bit out of your depth not haven't quite got your head around atomic structures or um quantum mechanics even um in a page or two we'll be back to telling stories about sexual harassment in the workplace and it's all good <laughs> yeah well well yeah exactly um uh throwing for a curveball because I'm, I'm writing on quantum mechanics so i'm having to learn about that but yeah no and, okay. and of course that's very and that story in the lab i mean i think that's why it's important to know that so often in science we talk about how well people don't matter we're just scientists and that's all it is well mm-hmm. no it's not you talked about your experiences yeah that isn't that isn't just you don't just go in do the science and come home there's so much more mm-hmm. to it than that um yeah and I think yeah i really, really want important. to humanize scientists as well by telling those kinds of stories yeah um and put the successes in context i suppose as well yeah i i think that we're in an age where we've lost trust in science and we see this we Mm -hmm. see a lot of people using science to for an agenda whether it's the government whether it's anti-trans people we Mm -hmm. see anti-vaxxers out there and and flat earth people and Mm -hmm. i think that as much as I'd love to say that it's, you know, people believing in these conspiracy theories, I think that scientists have lost the trust of people as well yeah. with that by being, by not describing the science, by making it look like only we can do this and no one else can, by making it look like, you know, we've made it our own thing. And so, of course, mm-hmm. people don't trust us. They don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think it's really important that we start humanizing scientists. Uh, I will say that I might have written a line about this, and unfortunately, it didn't make the bridge. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and I did consider fighting back on that um, because I, I think it is really important that it shows mm-hmm. that we're not just scientists, that we're people. And, yeah. and there's more to science than that. Um, and I do wonder, I do wonder whether this is a big part of why we've got such a pushback on science at the minute mm. i could be wrong it could be completely wrong but um it doesn't help that we're not making science more accessible and so books like this mm. help with that and so i hope it is hugely you know m- uh, ma- mass public um you mm. know uh yeah. successful because more people will it's be learning stuff i think in the last year we've heard a lot of rhetoric about the science says this, you know, we have to listen to the science yeah. right, when we're making decisions about public health policy, mainly this year. Yeah. Um, actually, it, it, the science doesn't have a voice. The only people with voices are scientists. Yeah. And the science has been done by people who are flawed and have their mm. own biases and their own agendas. And I think by dehumanizing science, we run such a dangerous risk of taking it as gospel and and not questioning it and um not being critical about the information that it is um the conclusions that it's coming to mm. um and i think that can be really dangerous because um if if we if we take the people out of it we then miss a massive data set <laughs> right yeah. be scientific about it um and and those sorts 
sort of influences are significant sometimes um and i think we do ourselves a disservice by by writing ourselves out of out of scientific papers and out of the narrative of science um and in extreme examples if we don't take into account who the scientists are bad stuff can get published yeah you know um yeah and and that can be really really damaging for all sorts of people and so I think it's important to acknowledge that there is good science and there's bad science and it's done by humans. Yeah. Um, and, and to, yeah, to take it in, in the, in full context of where it's come from. Yeah. I, I, and that's something that I say is really important because anyone can quote a paper, but if it's been discredited and not peer reviewed, yep. that just because it's a science paper doesn't mean it's, science it's good science and exactly. and especially like say when it comes to trans issues that's exactly yeah. what we hear about yes exactly. it's all the fringe views and for me you've got to look at the consensus and look at the bigger world and look at the majority of papers and data and totally and also sometimes we don't have to do science about stuff <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, not me, because, you know, that's how I pay the bills. But, you know, (laughs) until, you know, YouTube or my crafting takes off, then, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I just, yeah, we don't always have to study certain things in a scientific way. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that's interesting, because I was talking about, you know, I read your book, and I know I was like, oh, well, I'm using all these different materials for my crafting. Yeah. And then there was a certain point where it's like, it's my hobby. Do I want to yeah. go down that route? Exactly. Don't ruin it with science. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's not what I want to be talking about. I totally um, agree. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, but I am curious now. It's, it's that. Once you've prodded it, it's like, oh, yeah. now I want to know how these boxes are different from each other. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I'm going to sort of uh, let you go there. So thank you so much. Um where i mean the book where's it it's been published is it going to be widely available are you going to be shelves in wh smiths if we're allowed to go in shelves and (laughs) wh yeah (laughs) well um yeah it's available in all online bookshops um it'll be available in all physical bookshops if those are open um it's out on the 13th of may this year 2021 um and it's available for pre-order now and i'm recording the audiobook in a few weeks as well oh wow so you get to read if it all. Not your thing. Then you need to this voice. Yeah, <laughs> for hours and hours yeah. reading my own words. <laughs> wow, that'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, are you going to give yourself different voices for all the different people? No. <laughs> no, I was thinking about that, but then I was worried that some of the accents might be a bit offensive. <laughs> I, I, it's the trouble, isn't it? You want to do that and characterize things, but then there's a limit, and we've got to be aware of the limit. <laughs> Yeah, 100% that. It's quite funny, actually, when I um I had to sort of audition to read my own audiobook. Uh, yeah. and, um, so I, I read the opening before. sections. Yeah, it was really fun. So um, I read the opening few few pages um, and I had to, I was obviously reading it in my voice. And then in the opening section, I'm introducing myself on stage at my first ever comedy event. And I say, hello, my name's Anna and I'm a material scientist. And I had to make my voice different from my normal voice, like to do my stage voice. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was when i was like oh god this book has got too much of me in it <laughs> wow that's cool that's cool yeah so, wow. so um yeah i will be doing some voices but i will not be going fully yeah yeah i think is the thing that's, that's a good call that's a good call 
Um, I'm also well aware that I went. I, I, I the, the only book seller I could think of, I said W. H. Smith, and and that's I don't even buy books from there. Really, no. I mean, I don't even know if they exist anymore. Uh, <laughs> well, they did because I, I, I buy crafting stuff. Oh. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, and I guess I guess that means it's going to be a little bit difficult for sort of book tours. Are, are there going to be online book tours and things like yeah. that? Yeah. At the moment, I'm getting booked for gigs. They they're online, but the uh, the ones the ones in the summer and in the autumn, they're sort of saying we're probably going to do it in person. But will you be okay to do it online if not? Yeah. So yeah. it's still a little bit up in the air. But um, I'm hoping that you know maybe not right away in May, but after before too long, then I'll be able to actually be going out and meeting people because I mean that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, like we said right definitely. at the start of this conversation, so much much of communication is about looking people in the eye and having those conversations well with a book you've already got like physical distance from them yeah. so it'll think it'd be really nice to actually do what we're doing now talking to people that have read the stories and yeah i, I love going to sort of yeah book tours and stuff as well yeah. when it's you know my favorite authors so it's kind of cool um yeah so that's brilliant and where can people where can people find you to look out for that sort of information Oh, yeah. So um, a really good place is social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at um, Anna Pajajski, just full name. Um, that's P-L-O-S-Z-A-J-S-K-I. I will <laughs> put the links crazy. below as well Perfect. in the YouTube and the podcast um, so people can Thank find you. them. Perfect. Um, and I've also got a website, which is annapajajski.com. So I'll be I'll be posting lots of updates there. Yeah, yeah, but just Google me if you can spell it. And even if you can't spell it, approximate and Google will probably and handmade. find me. <laughs> yeah. Um, handmade is easier yeah. to spell, yeah. Yeah. i got to be honest, I saw, I saw a, a tweet about um, the book release and it's like, I've already got it. And I, I wanted to sort of, part of me wanted to say that and part of me was like, no. <laughs> Bit of dignity. <laughs> Bit of dignity, girl. Uh, <laughs> you can boast about it all you want. It all helps. <laughs> not very often it's only the second book i've ever got like in advance so you know it's a big big thing yeah yeah i'm very pleased (laughs) yeah uh awesome well with that thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and thanks um, so much yeah like i say i'll put links below and until next time bye 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 Well, there you go. That's Anna. Uh, Anna's great. And uh, I can highly recommend the book. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I realise I'm in a privileged position to have had an advanced copy. Um, And I I do know Anna, but I I really enjoyed the book. And hopefully that comes across um, the fact that I can actually remember stuff, which, given that my memories are civ, is pretty pretty interesting. So, like I say, uh, whether you're on vodcast or whether you're on uh, podcast, I'll be putting links in the description uh, to Anna. So hopefully with podcast you can get that. With YouTube, definitely they'll be down below. Um, And, you know, if you can like, subscribe, that'd be wicked. And tell your friends and tell your friends to buy Anna's book. And with that, take care. I'll see you soon. And bye.